Well, hello again. David Penn here welcoming you back to the Professor Penn Podcast. And I'm joining you today uh, after a very beautiful drive in. We have uh, a March snowstorm here in Minnesota today, and uh, the snow is wet and heavy and clings to the trees, and it's it's gorgeous. It's just a beautiful way to start the day, and uh, I'm uplifted by the beautiful scene outside. Uh, Zane made it in. The driving wasn't easy, which was great, so we're here ready to put on a good show for you today, and if you like it, please uh, click that subscribe button, and I'm going to ask all of you political activists out there to please send this out to everybody you know, because what we're doing here is developing a political action plan, and it requires people. Politics is a numbers game. Um, community is a personal game. We've got both things working simultaneously. We want to build a community of people that love and trust each other, and we want to proliferate that community throughout the country because it will be the collective effort of the American people which brings our country back into a state of well-being, back into the state of well-being that I need, that my family needs, that my children need, and that I know you need. So as we've been doing because of the seriousness of the Ukraine issue, uh, I'm trying to give it some time, this Ukraine issue, every uh, podcast until we get peace. We must speak out about peace. And, of course, I have a, a big agenda of things I'm working on, and when I take the time for the Ukraine, it's take cutting into my agenda. But I'm giving it the place in the podcast that it deserves, which is up front, number one, the most important thing. We must, as the American people, scream out, cry out, speak out for peace. And it's our collective will pressuring our elected representatives that is going to motivate them to actually give up this course of war, war without solution, a Darwinist war to see who is the survivor, who is the fittest. That is the concept that they're working. That is the paradigm that they're putting us all through and change this paradigm to one of well-being, to one of peace, to one of human dignity. So, uh, Zane, could you play this first uh, bit here about the uh, Bakhmut crisis that's going on? Ukraine is still fighting for Bakhmut, but that fight is looking ever more desperate. Commanders here say Russia is now sending its most prepared troops to the front, having sacrificed conscripts for months and that increasing the capabilities of their own frontline defenses has become, quote, problematic. The head of Russia's Wagner mercenary group has warned them to get out while they still have one road left to use. They are trying to beg the Ukrainian army to leave Bakhmut so he would stop defending the city. They hope to get the city without big losses, but they've lost so many people. The catastrophe for the Wagner group and the Russian army is inevitable. Wagner's founder says he's with his troops near Bakhmut, and he had his own grim message for his Ukrainian opponents. We are sending another shipment of Ukrainian army fighters home. They fought bravely and perished. That's why this latest truck will take them back to their motherland. Prigozhin has publicly criticized Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, for the many failures of the military campaign so far. Perhaps no coincidence then, with the capture of Bakhmut seemingly in sight, he too should be in eastern Ukraine. 
In Western Lviv, Ukraine's president was meeting the president of the European Parliament. Roberta Metsola called for speedy talks on Ukraine's EU membership, investigations into and accountability for alleged Russian war crimes and further military support. Ukraine needs the weapons to defend itself. We have already given 3.1 billion euros through the European Peace Facility uh, to Ukraine, but it is clear that more is needed. If we want to have a safe Europe, we need to have a safe Ukraine. There's no safety to be found in Bakhmut. A town of more than 70,000 people has been reduced to this. About 3,000 are estimated to remain. Among them, Hanadi and Natalia, scavenging for what they can to survive. There are problems with food, Natalia says. Humanitarian aid is given to us only once a month. There's no electricity, no water, no gas. We burn wood, says Hanadi. At least it's warmer. If Russia does soon prevail in Bakhmut, after six months of attrition, there's little left to claim as a prize. Natalia says she can only pray that whoever does remain here will survive. Harry? Thank you, Zane. Well, this is a city of 70,000 people that has been reduced to rubble. Uh, the Russian forces are closing in on victory there. The Ukrainian forces were alleged to be getting ready to pull back in a, what's called a strategic redeployment, also known as retreat. Um, over the last 24 hours, there's been an intensification of conflict, and it's not so clear how this battle is going to come out, but the Russians are all in on expelling the Ukrainians from this city. And uh, the, the average life expectancy, according to reports, of course I'm not there, thank God, but according to reports that I've seen, the average life expectancy for a Ukrainian soldier on the front lines in Bakhmut is four hours. Four hours. So this is very intense fighting, probably the most intense fighting that we've seen in Europe since World War II. And <clears throat> the conventional wisdom, of course, is that this Bakhmut area is not uh, strategic, that this is a, a, a psychological victory for the Russians. Uh, actually, when I look at the map, I see this Bakhmut as uh, demarcating the western edge of the Russian-speaking region, and I see that the Russians are trying to consolidate their hold over that eastern Russian-speaking region called the Donbass, which would then give them a victory on the ground, the facts on the ground, much like Crimea, the Russians would have a victory. And, you know, of course, the West is trying to deny them that victory. I, I have to just say that this Roberta Metsola, who was shown visiting uh, President Zelensky, she's the president of the European Parliament, uh, she just recently addressed the World Economic Forum on June 24th. So here we have that integration with the World Economic Forum, with NATO, with the European Union, with the United States really representing the interest, the globalist interests that the West has in confronting and expelling Russia from the Ukraine. <clears throat> now, this is crazy because the Russians have claimed that they will not suffer a strategic defeat. And if they do have a strategic defeat, they'll use nuclear weapons. And the West is saying they're going to defeat the Russians. So we're sliding down the drain pipe 
to a nuclear war or a nuclear exchange. Uh, over what? What are we fighting over here? What is our country, the United States of America, doing? What is the interest of me, David Penn, Professor Penn? What is my interest? What is the interest of my family, my children, the people that I work with, my community? How does this war enhance the well-being of the American people? In fact, how does war enhance anybody's well-being? We are living in a Darwinist nightmare. Now, Darwinism or social Darwinism is a codification of our experiment in consciousness where we have decided as, as human beings that there is a struggle for survival, that there is a survival of the fittest, and that war is the ultimate crucible through which human beings determine survivability and fitness. This is the best we can do up till now. We've, we've been around a long time, hundreds of thousands of years, and this is where we're at. And let's just take it a step further to really look at where we're at. Let's just take a look at the next step of this thing, which is our U.S. government is now considering training Ukrainian pilots to fly F-16 warplanes. Let's just take a look at what this capability is all about. Could you please play this, Zane? Boy, that's beautiful. This is a picture of a guided munition being dropped out of an F-16 in slow motion. It's just gorgeous. A blue sky, fantastic military hardware. It's actually being shown in a way that's kind of sexy and beautiful. The problem with this is when that bomb gets down to the ground, human beings die. Oh, it's gorgeous. Look at this thing. This is the high point of science and technology. Do we have this next one on the F-22 Raptor? Is there one on that Raptor that we got? I mean, it even goes, it gets even more extreme. Here's the new, the latest generation, the F-22 Raptor. This thing can suspend itself in midair. Uh, this is a stealth fighter. Look at this thing. It's amazing. It's simply amazing. What technology of death and destruction. What a high point of science and technology to give us this gorgeous, sexy killing machine. This is what we have done as human beings. We've created this technology. I'm sure these planes are great comfort to all of us, fantastic comfort to all of us that our government has this capability. Actually, that F-16, if, if we take and, and deliver this F-16 to the Ukrainians, We'll never know who's flying it because what's interesting about this scam about the pilots is it's going to take a couple of years to train Ukrainian pilots to fly F-16s. So if F-16s are deployed with alleged Ukrainian pilots, how will we ever know they're Ukrainian pilots? How will we know who's flying these machines of death? And we've been prepared for this. 
and media and Hollywood has been working on this for decades and decades and decades about this air war and who's flying these machines. Zane, can you just pop this one up from the Battle of Britain and the Polish pilots that were there? This is a great one. T-5, what's that? Uh, training squadron, sir. Uh, the Poles. Get them out of it. Get them down. Blackhawk leader, vector 230 and return to base immediately. Over. Blackhawk leader received and understood. Out. Blackhawk leader to A flight. Turn to port and steer 230. Niemcy! Niemcy! Na dole! Nie widzę ich! Gdzie? Na dole! Na prawo! Idę na nich! Widzę Stop that Polish chatter! and steer two, three, zero. Repeat, please. I say again, two, three, zero. Repeat, please. But crying out loud, two, Repeat, please. three, zero. Repeat, please. Repeat, please. Now just shut up, the lot of you, and follow me, unless you're blind as well as... Oh, God's truth. Two, strict RT procedure will be observed at all times. Po drugie, procedura radiowa będzie ściśle przestrzegana przez cały czas. And it is never, repeat, never to be used. I nigdy, powtarzam, nigdy nie będzie używana for private Polish chit-chat. Na prywatne polskie rozmówki. Finally, and God alone knows why, I've received the following signal. Congratulations, as of today, this squadron is operational. Signed, Keith Park, Air Vice Marshal AOC 11 Group. That's good. Yeah, thank you very much. So here we have a, uh, a famous movie called The Battle of Britain. It was uh, filmed and released in the 1960s where we were you know, relatively close to the World War II experience. I remember seeing it in the movie theaters, and it was just so uplifting watching these uh, British uh, fighter planes uh, have at it with the Nazis, shooting them down, protecting freedom. Uh, it was just great, and it, it helped prepare me and, and, and cult acculturate me into the, into the scientific the power of the scientific. Look at this great benefit, these war machines. And of course, what's great about this scene is they had Polish pilots. 
Polish flying these planes. Well, how would anybody know they're Polish? They're up in the air. Nobody Don't even speak Polish. They warned them, no more Polish, because they want to hide that. Well, what do we, what do we know? about who's fighting in the Ukraine, who's manning these uh, uh, weapons and, and using these weapons, and if there's F-16s that are now, you know, given to the Ukrainians, who's really flying them? Are they ex-U.S. military? Are they, Europe? are they Polish military? How would we ever know who's in these planes? And the point is, the point is, it's part of the ongoing escalation that the West, that the globalist West, that the United States empire and its confederates in NATO and in England, it's this ongoing escalation which is being uh, directed towards expelling the Russians from the Ukraine, from Crimea, which the Russians have told us repeatedly will lead to a nuclear exchange. The Russians are using this Bakhmut thing to consolidate their gains on the ground, the facts on the ground. And the Ukrainians, backed by the United States and NATO, are doing everything possible to expel the Russians. And people have an average life expectancy at the front lines of four hours. And we've got the head of the Wagner Group sending bodies back in coffins quite proudly. We've reached insanity at the highest level. This is the opposite of well-being. So I ask you to please go to your computer, find your local state representative, your federal representative, your congressperson, your senator. Go to their website. They will have a communications module. All you have to do is put your information in and send them an email. It's all electronic. Take five minutes. Dear Congressperson, I do not support the war in Ukraine. I support human well-being. Get us out of this war. Stop it. Please stop it. Not even please. Demand it. Stop it. And when all of us as American citizens start to scream at these elected people, stop it, they'll stop it. The reason they're getting away with it is we're not paying any attention. And while we're not paying any attention, we're slipping closer and closer to a nuclear war. Every day this goes on, we're closer to a catastrophe. So please, I'm taking my time to talk to you. I would like thousands of you to please write into our elected representatives, pass this message on, forward it, ask people to subscribe. Let's get serious about protecting the lives of our children. Now, there's a lot of different power groups. That would be the Western globalists, the United States and the Europeans, the Russians, the Chinese, and the Middle East people, the, 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 the oil cartels. These are strong power blocks, all vying for a piece of the action in this reshuffling of the New World Order. And there's some very powerful changes going on that we have to note as the American people. We don't want to get narcissistic and think we're in control of things because we're not in control of things. This is a jump ball. Jump on basketball means we're, we're jumping for this ball. Nobody knows who's going to get possession of the power 
to run the world, and they're fighting for it. There's the evidence. People are dying in the hundreds of thousands. So there's big changes going on. Let's take a look at the Belarus president visiting President Xi in China. China rolled out the pomp and ceremony for a state visit from the Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko. I'm happy to see my old friend proclaim China's president, Xi Jinping. The visit comes as Belarus finds itself increasingly scorned and sanctioned by the West for allowing Russia to use its territory to stage troops and mount attacks against Ukraine. Today's meeting is taking place at a very difficult time that requires new, unconventional approaches, said Lukashenko. China has called for an end to the fighting in Ukraine but isn't publicly pressuring Russia to withdraw. Still, the U.S. is concerned Beijing could send Russia weapons. It can't be putting forward peace proposals on the one hand while actually feeding the flames of the fire that Russia has started uh, with the other hand. The U.S. Secretary of State repeated those warnings during his first visit to Central Asia. He met with officials from former Soviet states with close ties to Russia and China. I think that Secretary Blinken wants to convey the message to um, the five uh, countries of Central Asia that Russia is not a reliable partner. This analyst says all countries are seeking to shore up alliances. While helping to open a new metro line, Russia's president reminded the crowd China's leader has promised to pay Moscow a visit soon. China may talk about its no-limits friendship with Russia, but that's hard to maintain. The longer the war goes on, the harder it's going to get for China to straddle this balance. And I think that we're already starting to see um, the tensions. Could you stop that, please? This guy's fortune telling. Another guy, another fortune teller. He's either making the future or he's making up a story to manipulate me with propaganda. What he said was the longer this goes on, the harder it gets for China to straddle this line. The line being peacemaker arms supplier. Well, hey, we got a competitor. Our country, the United States of America, has been selling arms to both sides of every conflict since World War II and always can perpetually uh, uh, talking about peace and, and, and the importance of peace talks until this war. No talk about peace talks this time. But this is a purely propagandized uh, uh, opinion and it really kind of flies in the face of the message of the whole uh, historical bit we're going through here. Zane, could you complete this and we'll come on, comment on it a little bit more when it's done. More prominent, they're becoming more pronounced. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is expected to dominate discussion at the G20, which gets underway in India Thursday. But the U.S. Secretary of State says he has no plans to hold individual meetings with either China or Russia. Thank Breyer you very Stewart, much. CBC News. So what this Eurasia expert was saying was that it's going to get harder and harder for the Chinese. Actually, an equally good case could be made. It's going to get easier and easier for them because what are they up to here? First of all, as we all know or we need to discover, war is fantastic business for a small handful of people that are closely aligned with governments 
and get paid to make the weapons. Hey, you can be a millionaire making the spoons that go in the mess kits. War is a phenomenally profitable business for a small group of people. So the Chinese want to get in on this. They want to sell the weapons. They want to have a, a client state, Russia, a client state, Iran, which was, is called the Iron Triangle, that alliance, Russia, Iran, and China. It's an iron, iron triangle because it's an alliance that can never be broken. And what the Chinese are doing is, is they're contemplating selling arms to the Russians, very profitable for them. Maybe in exchange for oil, might be a cashless transaction. It could be arms for oil, just like arms for drugs. Hey, it's a good business. And then what they're really doing with Lukashenko visiting is what the Chinese are doing is they're getting involved in this Eastern European area, this, this arc from the Baltic states down to the southern Ukraine, this fault line that exists between the West and Russia that's been at war off and on forever, the clash of civilizations right there, that Darwinist impulse. And the Chinese are getting involved with their very heavy checkbook. And what they're saying is no to the West. Yes, you're proposing rebuilding Ukraine after the war, but hey, we're going to do it at a lower price. We're going to cut the Ukrainians and the Russian people a better deal. The Chinese are trying to take over the, both the arms business and the reconstruction business. Unprecedented. Nobody can predict the future now because this is a new development in world history where China is getting involved in a war as an arms supplier, as a broker of the peace, and as the uh, rebuilder of the new order. So let us see how this comes out. But let us not underestimate the power and the importance of China getting involved in this conflict in this way, and let us not fortune tell the outcome. Perhaps it will have a very salutatious outcome. Perhaps the Chinese can broker a peace, which I have to say, if they do, thank God. Let them broker a peace. Because there's no effort on the part of the United States of America, the country that I live in, to broker a peace. And people are screaming for peace where? In Europe. Not here in Minneapolis, not in New York City, not in Miami, not in Kansas City, where we're going about our pursuits because we feel far away from this war, which is kind of um, ignoring the technology involved. But in Europe, where they're on the front lines, the European people are out in the streets. Zane, I think this is beautiful. Let's get this on. Marching for peace in Ukraine. Hundreds took to the streets of London on Saturday, urging a ceasefire and negotiations with Russia to end the conflict. Among them, supporters of the campaign for nuclear disarmament, warning that any escalation in fighting would increase the chances of a nuclear war. Many wanted to see an end to West Western military support for Ukraine. It would help if we stopped saying we'll just give you lots more weapons until you win the war. It's not going to happen like that. You know, Ukrainians are really tough, Russians are really tough, and NATO is really rich. So that's, that's all the ingredients you need for a kind of endless war. Well, this demonstration is one of many happening over this weekend across Europe. Now, for these demonstrators, 
arming Ukraine is simply making things worse and prolonging the conflict, but others take a very different approach. In the Belgian capital, many of those marching in solidarity with Ukraine were actually refugees from that country. for our defense. We need the sanctions against the Russia. Uh, we need uh, uh, economical support because we defend not only our land, but we defend all democracy world. My Stop it, please. War. Okay, thank you, Zane. I just, this young Ukrainian man, he's parroting the propaganda that Ukrainians are not just fighting for Ukraine, they're fighting for all democracy. Well, first of all, Ukraine is not a democracy. It's a dictatorship. So right at the base, we've got a little bit of a contradiction. Number two, they're not fighting for all of democracy. They're fighting for their own interests in their own homeland. I don't need them to fight for me. I will fight for myself. I don't want to set them up as a sacrificial lamb for democracies all over the world. Let's realize this young man is parroting propaganda that he's heard over and over and over again, that we must stop Russia in the Ukraine. And you saw the images that the Ukrainian protesters were using. It was Putin as Hitler. And that's, that is the connection that they want people to make in their minds in Europe, that if Hitler uh, had been stopped uh, before Poland was invaded, we would have never had World War II. And likewise, if Putin is stopped, we're not going to have World War III. This is a projection into the future. It's a fear-based manipulation of people. And the Ukrainians, of course, have a great interest in this because it's their people and their country that's being destroyed. Okay, please continue. Land, we defend all democracy world. My own war is here. I want to do my best in it. I want to show people, uh, as much people as I can, that we want to survive. We want normal life. We want to, uh, our life back. While in Berlin, a bigger protest, at least 10,000 turned up to say no to the idea of Germany arming Ukraine. We're demonstrating for peace and against uh, intervention of our government in, uh, in that war that is not ours. The people that voted for those politicians, they did not know that they will um, push us into war and send weapons into uh, countries that are Can in you war. stop this it, please, Zane? You hear what this man is saying? The people that voted for these politicians did not know that these politicians were going to get Germany involved in a war. This is the power of the people. Out protesting, what he's saying is, we elected them, and if they can continue to go down this path, we can continue to unelect them. So this is the relationship between the people and the people we elect to represent us. If they don't represent our interests, we can get rid of them. So here's the question I want to ask myself. Do I want to have a nuclear war? The answer is no. Therefore, I want to get rid of any politician that is doing anything that would contribute to the possibility of a nuclear war. If you agree with me, go to your computer and send your elected representatives an email with your feelings about it. Please continue.
sight to the misery inflicted on the people of Ukraine. Barbara Al Jazeera, London. Thank you. That was the end of the bit. Thank you. You notice we're using Al Jazeera for our news, which is a Qatari news uh, uh, source. Why? Well, you tell me why. Very. I hope it could be obvious. They cover things differently than our media here in this country. I can't find any uh, uh, easily uh, reproducible clips of these po protests, which involved tens of thousands of people. I had to go to Al Jazeera to get it. I knew it was going on. I knew there was protests. Why? Because if you're 400 or 500 miles from the front lines, you're going to get nervous. And people are getting nervous in Europe. They're cold. Their energy is expensive. Their food supply is disrupted. They're afraid about getting drawn into a general war in Europe. So they're protesting as well they should and as well we could here also in the United States of America if we were focused on well-being, on human life, and on human dignity. So, you know, the, the impulse to war, this default to the survival of the fittest to social Darwinism is so baked into our thinking. It's so bedrock to how we proceed. And there is a certain truth to it because we know that there is a struggle between uh, individuals, between cultures in the animal world, between different animals, plant world. We know there is some kind of a, a, a struggle or some kind of a competition, or some kind of a pressure that we all face to survive. That's a yang. What happened to the yin? What happened to the, the other side of that complementary antagonist? That's what we're going to talk about today. And we've been talking about it uh, for the last few a podcast because it's a very complex subject. It's shrouded in scholarship and in uh, history, and it's so shrouded, in fact, that it's become occult. And when I say occult, I don't necessarily mean, you know, witchy. I mean, it's hidden. Occult means hidden. It's hidden. Why we think the way we think, why we act the way we act, or how we have decided we think the way we think and act the way we act, this has been hidden from us. When you hide it from the people, the people can't think it through. What is the balance here? What kind of complementary antagonisms are we working? And this survival of the fittest thing goes back into antiquity. And as we talked about in a previous podcast, there were some British uh, uh, scholars in the 1800s that codified what had been banging around in people's heads for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And that was Charles Darwin and his cousin, cousin Herbert Spencer and the Troika, the third guy, Sir Francis Galton. These three pillars of the British intellectual tradition codified Darwinism or the survival of the fittest or the origin of the species. That's Charles Darwin. His cousin, Herbert Spencer, created social Darwinism, or a, comp a competition of peoples, and then this uh, Sir Francis Galton weaponized this into a political strategy he called eugenics. In other words, if there is a 
competition amongst groups and individuals such to, that only the strongest survive, Galton theorized that we can help it along with eugenics, positive eugenics and negative eugenics. You can imagine that positive eugenics was about breeding and negative eugenics was about genocide. Genocide. So we've been dealing with this for thousands of years. It was codified. And what's underneath? What is the, the underneath here? The underneath is, is that the British crown had perpetrated a business model that was based on slavery, drugs, and piracy for hundreds of years. They paid for a group of scholars to turn that into a scientific theory because, after all, science was the new shiny toy. It was explaining everything. So they paid for an explanation that justified their business model. And in that, inherent in that, in that business model, in that social Darwinist business model, was a belief that some groups were more fit or more better or more appropriate or more holy or more strong, whatever the more was, than others. And we started to explore this after World War II, after the Atlantic Charter, when the other polarity, which happens to be the Judeo-Christian tradition, started to juxtapose, wait a second, maybe this Darwinist thing's running away with itself. Maybe all people need to self-determine. Maybe we need self-governance. The concept of well-being juxtaposed with the concept of war. Now, we had to work through our ideas about this. It has been baked in the cake, and it's still baked in the cake today, racism and anti-Semitism. So let us just take a look at this first piece from the Gentleman's Agreement again. We've seen it before. I was Jewish for eight weeks. Why, Mr. Green, you're a Christian. But I never... Well? But I've, I've been around you more than anybody else, and I never once... Oh, what's so upsetting about that, Miss Williams? You mean there is some difference between Jews and Christians? Look at me, look at me hard. I'm the same man I was yesterday. That's true, isn't it? Why should you be so astonished, Miss Wales? You still can't believe that anybody would give up the glory of being a Christian for even eight weeks, can you? That's what's eating you, isn't it? Now, if I tell you that that's anti-Semitism, your feeling of being Christian is better than being Jewish, you're going to tell me that I'm heckling you again, or that I'm twisting your words around, or that it's just facing facts, as someone else said to me yesterday. Face me now, Miss Wales. Come on, look at me. Same face, same eyes, same nose, same suit, same everything. Here, take my hand. Feel it. Same flesh as yours, isn't it? No different today than it was yesterday, Miss Wales. The only thing that's different is the word Christian. Wow. Bombshell. Right after World War II, which opened up a space for people to think about their anti-Semitic views. And this was part of our country starting to uh, struggle towards well-being and away from social Darwinism. Uh, but it wasn't just the Jews. Let's take a look at this next bit, which I think is just as uh, important, and it, it, it kind of uh, lets us know how pervasive this, this Darwinism really is. 
Spark country right there, Mr. Cutting. Americans are borning. I don't see no Americans. I see trespassers. Irish hops do a job for a nickel what a nigger does for a dime and a white man used to get a quarter for. What have they done? Name one thing they've contributed. Votes. Votes, you say? They vote how the archbishop tells them, and who tells the archbishop? Their king in the pointy hat, what sits on his throne in Rome. Bill's got mixed feelings as regards the Irish. Bill, deliver these good and fervent folk to the polls on a regular basis, and there'll be a handsome price for each vote goes Tammany's way. My father gave his life making this country what it is. Murdered by the British with all of his men on the 25th of July, Anno Domini 1814. You think I'm gonna help you befoul his legacy? By giving this country over to them was had no hand in the fighting for it? Why, because they come off a boat crawling with lice and begging you for soup? You're a great one for the fighting, Bill, I know. But you can't fight forever. I can go down doing it. And you will. What did you say? I said you're turning your back on the future. Not our future. Oh, and here we have uh, a little uh, anti-Catholic sentiment as expressed in The Gangs of New York, Martin Scorsese film, great film, Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, portraying a anti-Catholic uh, uh, butcher. He was a butcher, and this movie was about the resistance to the immigration of the Irish in New York City, and the resistance against that Catholic, the Catholicism, and the Irishness of these people that were not Americans, and they didn't do anything to build the country, and they were obviously discriminated against in a very significant way, very significant. And they had a fight. And then the Italians had a fight. And every one of these groups that came into the country, when we had these waves of European immigration, the Jewish immigration, Italian immigration, the Irish immigration, the German immigration, all these immigrants came here. Some were welcomed as being superior genetic stock because that's exactly how it was talked about. They were superior culturally. They were superior physically, they were superior spiritually, and then other groups were discriminated against, they were barred from participation, they were pushed out, they were passed over, they were beaten, they were discriminated against, they were killed. And who were the killers of these people? We need to think about this. Let's take a look at this last piece here on PBS on racism. The earliest memory I have is our parents and friends and neighbors teaching us about what we should do and what we shouldn't do. We had to make sure that we behave in certain ways. And there was a different world, black and white world. If we walked down the sidewalk and a white man was coming toward us, we had to look down upon the ground. And if a white woman walked down our same sidewalk, we would have to walk out in the street, couldn't walk down the same sidewalk. We couldn't ride in the front of the buses. We couldn't use certain facilities, restrooms, and different things around town. If we wanted to go and buy a pair of shoes or clothing, they could only hold the shoe up. We couldn't try them on. We couldn't try on a cap. 
I mean, imagine you're living in a society somewhere where blacks and white cannot even talk to each other, cannot work together, and all of a sudden someone come to help you, someone who's white, and he treats you like a human. And naturally, we just, it was, we just bonded. Thank you, Zane. And there you have it. You had the black community brought here in chains, in iron. They were brought here in irons. Many people did not su survive the passage on those slave ships. They did not survive. They got here and they were enslaved. They were stripped of their culture. They were kept uneducated, in tatters, in poverty, as we're going to see subsequently in this podcast. So we had these groups that were brought here in slavery. We had an, a native group that was, you know, destroyed through genocide. And then we had these subsequent waves of, of uh, immigration. Many of these immigrants were actually resisted, were discriminated against, were forced into ghettos. They were, they were parasitized. Who were the people that were, were perpetrating this upon all these different immigrant and minority groups? Who were these people? Let us ask ourselves, who were these people then? And who are these people today? How is social Darwinism and Darwinism hiding in plain sight, hiding in the open today? Because it's just as functional today, just as powerful today, as it was 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago, 500 years ago. It hasn't changed very much. It hasn't changed very much. And that's why we have this new militancy that is developing of people who are fighting the power. Well, first of all, let us just say that historically, since Lyndon Baines Johnson in the 1960s, the Democrat Party has gone out of its way, as that uh, interview was so eloquent in, in expressing, to go into these communities and be friendly and to be helpful. And this broke down some of the boundaries and some of the division that existed. The Democrat Party has done a far better job in reaching out to these communities. It doesn't mean that their intent was good, and it certainly doesn't mean that their policies are actually helping these communities. In fact, a good case could be made that the policies are not helping these communities, that their policies are creating dependency and degradation and squalor and ill health and, and, and anti-well-being because government dependency is unwellness independence, the, the kind of um, ideas that were uh, expressed in our Constitution, the right of self-governance, the ability to promote and to, to, to seek happiness and, and freedom, those are the things that bring about the kind of well-being that a person can enjoy and can use to sustain themselves through this very difficult passage and journey we call life. But the Democrat Party has opened itself, and let's remember who these people were. They're the party of the South. They're the party of slavery. 
They're the party of Jim Crow. They're the party of anti-Semitism. The Democrat Party, if we really study their history, they were the party of exclusion, exploitation, and slavery. They were the representatives, the original Democrats, of the crown in this country. And I'll make the case that they are still the representation of that business model. They're just taking it to version 2.0. They've learned how to enslave people without chains. They learned how to get people hooked on drugs. They've learned how to exploit the people in a way that, well, let's just call it the velvet glove. They've done it in a way that is a little bit harder to discern. And let's talk about the Republican Party. It has, it has remained uh, allegedly the bastion of conservatism, but in cooperation with the Democrat Party, it's generated a $32 trillion national debt because we do have a two-party system, and the outcome is from both of them. $32 trillion of debt, the verge of nuclear war, humongous income inequality, and the party has maintained a more exclusionary role in our society. It is a, the Republican Party is obviously against open borders. It's against immigration or illegal immigration. It has been saddled by the Democrat uh, spinmeisters of being a racist, anti-Semitic, xenophobic, anti-immigration party. Well. Obviously, for them to accomplish that, those Democratic spinmeisters, there must be some truth there. There has to be a kernel of truth upon which propaganda can be built. And I'm going to say that these two parties, this two-party system, let's forget about the two-party system for a minute. I mean, everybody's got to pick a party. you got to pick a side, right? But let's just posit for a minute that they're on the same side. And where we find ourselves today is the outcome of the two-party system. So something's gone wrong. Something has gone grotesquely wrong. One thing that's gone wrong is, is that the conservative party is really not conservative. It's conservative in name only. What was the party supposed to conserve? And that would be the concept of a creator that grants unalienable rights. It didn't really conserve that. How do we know it? Because we're living in a Darwinist soup where the survival of the fittest prevails in business, it, it prevails in politics, it prevails in warfare. We did not preserve in the Republican Party an emphasis on the spiritual. We in the Republican Party adopted the Darwinist dependency on science. We just did. Here's an anecdotal story. I went to a debate before the last election cycle. I'm not going to mention names, but it was a debate for uh, Congress. It was two, two people vying for the Republican uh, or endorsement to run for Congress here in Minnesota. And one of the uh, uh, candidates made a quip uh, talking about the vaccines and COVID saying, well, we're all anti-vax now. And he thought it was funny. And you could have heard a pin drop because there was hundreds of people in that room 
And at that time, before the 2022 election, there was a consensus that those vaccines were really good for you. Well, that consensus has fallen apart now. In other words, in the Republican Party, there's a great emphasis and reliance on science. Just like in the Democrat Party, the same concept. There's no distinction. There's no difference. The brands are the same. If science comes up with it, it's good. F-16's good. F-16's good. F-22's better. Let's fund it, and let's feel safe because our military protects us. Now, you know, another anecdote. I was one time at the Eiffel Tower. I had a young daughter, my youngest daughter. She wanted to go to the Eiffel Tower. I didn't want to go, but, of course, it was a family once-in-a-lifetime trip, so we went. And what did I see? I saw a lot of French military there with automatic weapons. And right away, I said to myself, I'm in the wrong place because the best way to win a fight is not be there when one starts. So if you look around and you find yourself in an area and a lot of people have automatic weapons, it's not very safe there. The safety is an illusion. The safety is an illusion. The safety of weaponry is an illusion. And we pay for it. It's part of the business model of piracy. So the two parties lost their distinction. The conservative party, which was there to conserve faith and family and friendship amongst all people, let that go. So I want to forget about parties. I want to look at both parties as one yin-yang dynamic. And where did they go wrong? What happened such that we're unable to extricate ourselves from what is called continuous revolution or continuous conflict? And I would just like to, you know, as a, as a way to get into this, could we play this, this piece about uh, Chairman Mao? The Chinese Cultural Revolution was a period of political and social upheaval in China from 1966 to 1976. It was launched by Chinese Communist Party leader Mao Zedong, with the stated goal of purifying the party and the country of capitalist and traditional elements. Millions of Chinese citizens, particularly intellectuals, were persecuted and many were killed or sent to labor camps. The educational system was also disrupted, with many schools and universities closed. Cultural and religious artifacts were destroyed and traditional practices were discouraged. The economy was also affected, with many factories and businesses closing. The revolution officially ended with the death of Mao in 1976, but its impact is still felt in China today. The Chinese Cultural Revolution resulted in a significant loss of life and caused immense social upheaval, leaving a deep and lasting impact on China's political and cultural landscape. A little bit like woke culture. See, this was the, another revolution. You know, that Mao fought a long, long battle for the liberation of the Chinese people, which ended uh, in the late 40s, and it, it, it culminated in the creation of a, a communist state there. The Chinese Communist Party took control in 1949. But when you're in a Darwinist model, when you're in a Darwinist model, where the, the polarity, the complementary antagonist, 
is status quo on the one hand and militancy on the other, or you know, social equity on the other. Let's call militancy and social equity one pole, and the status quo is the other pole. You know, Mao took over in 49. It didn't take very long for a status quo to develop in China because the status quo always develops. People learn how to work the system for their own benefit. So when your polarity is the status quo and social equity, which is everybody has the same thing, you're always going to have militancy and continuous revolution. You're, you, you've gone down a path to continual violence and upheaval. And I'm going to say I think this is where we've really gone wrong here in, in the two-party system. And where we've gone wrong as Americans, where we've gone wrong as a spiritual people seeking well-being. Because what we've done is, is our academics, either through uh, manipulation and uh, ill intent, or possibly just through stupidity, because let us not believe for one minute that getting a PhD makes a person wise. It means people can take a test and pass an oral exam and they were been very good at marshalling facts and creating a, a knowledge base. But it doesn't mean that they can wield that knowledge base in a wise fashion. How do we know that? That'd be Sir Francis Galton, because he took the thousands of years of human observation about there's a struggle to survive, and he weaponized it into eugenics and took it into a secret society called the Masons and turned it into a political strategy which Margaret Sanger then created here in this country as Planned Parenthood, which she used against the black community because she thought they were inferior and they should not reproduce. I mean, this is really a horrifying, um, it's a horrifying uh, set of historical facts. So we can't believe that because someone is educated that they're necessarily wise or necessarily good. And as we just went through on the previous podcast, you know, when the British Crown is, is, is funding Oxford and funding Cambridge and funding academic inquiry, how do we know that the inquiry is honest? How do we know that the results have anything to do with truth? And the same thing now we know in this country. We've got a trillion-dollar post-secondary uh, educational industry, of which about 40% is funded directly by the U.S. government. A very small percentage is funded by tuition, and the rest is funded by endowments and grants from private individuals and corporations. So what does our academic institutions have to do with truth when they're on someone's payroll? We need to think this through. What do we know? What are we taught? Who's teaching us? What are these ideologies that we are being force-fed as being correct? And what ideologies are being marginalized? What ideologies are being deep six down the memory hole? And I'll tell you what the one is that I'm most interested in that I want to resurrect is the concept of the natural way and the concept of well-being. For example, living in harmony with nature, living in harmony with one another, living in harmony within ourselves, having a connection to the world of the spiritual. Those uh, ways of being have been marginalized. And I'm going to tell you why I think they are marginalized. If a person is well, they don't get into legal conflicts. They can resolve their problems 
without that kind of legal conflict. There's no money for the attorneys if someone is well. If someone is well, there's no money for the doctors. There's no money in wellness. There's just feeling righteous, feeling good, knowing that you're learning, humility, humbleness, service, all the things that make a person well. So I have a, a, a one-liner today that I've thought about. There's life and there's death, and everything in between is someone's revenue stream. There's birth and there's death, and in between is a bunch of diagnostic codes that people are making money on, not necessarily making us well. And what we have to do, what we have to sort out as the American people is what techniques, what scientific inventions or benefits are really benefits and what is actually making us unwell. This is going to take us a long time to work through it because right now we're holding the judgment as a collective consciousness that if it's scientific, it's good. Now that F-16, we looked at it. It's beautiful. It is actually a piece of art. It is deadly. It exists for one purpose, to kill. We're told it exists to make us safe, but its purpose actually is to kill. It's the outcome of all of our efforts, all of our taxes, all of our science, all of our institutions, all of our higher learning, science, technology, math, engineering, the STEM education. The outgrowth of all of that is killing. We, as the American people, have created a, a, a huge social outcome, which is called murder. Murder incorporated, like a gang. We're a gang. We're a big gang of killers. And all we have to do, if we like that, is continue to pay taxes and continue to elect people that perpetuate the killing. You know when this is going to stop is when we get killed. Because you know, there's an old... Adage, which is true, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. So what, we, what I represent and what I hope millions of people will join, the free people of America, is to get away from this false duality, this false complementary antagonism of social Darwinism and social equity. And why do I say this is wrong? When you have social Darwinism, you're saying that man struggles to be the fittest and to outproduce and outlive the competition. And this breeds racism. It breeds hatred. It breeds and perpetuates all the things that allow a man to objectify another person and enslave them. You can't enslave somebody that you view as a, a living human being, as a child of God. That's crazy. You can't kill someone unless you're a psychopath, a person that you deal with as an equal. No, what we do is we objectify the other. We make them less than us. We make them, a der, a der, a der, we, der, we deride these people as being inferior, and that justifies slavery and murder. And, and, and human beings have been doing this for thousands of years. But, of course, there is another ideology, which is the Judeo-Christian experience. 
So we've got right now social Darwinism, which is this competition of the fittest, and social equity, which means everybody has the same thing. Let's wipe out this manipulation and this prejudice and this uh, war based on human difference, and let's make everybody the same. So we've got the Darwinists on one side and the warriors for social equity on the other. And it's a false dichotomy because in both cases, man has elevated himself and woman have elevated themselves to the arbiters of human life. On the one hand, certain humans have the manifest destiny, which we'll talk about a lot, the manifest destiny to, to uh, conquer, to uh, uh, create the world in which the white Christian man is ascendant, manifest destiny, perpetrate genocide on Native peoples, enslave peoples, also known as imperialism, also known as social Darwinism. They're all kind of different descriptions of the same mindset. That's one hand. And then we got all the reaction to it that came out of the universities and are in the street today, the social equity people. That man has to redress this in incredibly incorrect idea of racism and anti-Semitism. And as long as we stay on that polarity, we're just like Mao, we're going to have a continuous revolution because this social equity, when this thing takes over as it is now, there's going to be a new status quo. There's going to be new victims. There's going to be new people that are going to be repressed and are going to be unwell. And they're going to rise up, and they're going to scream for a revolution. So we're going to be in this continuous revolution, continuous revolution of militancy and of violence. Violence breeds violence. Repression breeds violence. This is going to keep going on until we take stock and we realize that in our rush to create this scientific world, we lost the world of the spirit. We all lost it. We've all lost it. We've all become very unbalanced into our heads, into a belief in science. And we've minimized almost for most of us to de minimis like it doesn't exist. The power, the centrality, and the importance of the spiritual to our well-being. So this is really a fundamental idea that I'm working with you, that we've got to get off of a false dichotomy and get onto the true dichotomy the scientific, and the spiritual. And when we start working that dichotomy, we're going to start to make some progress and start to restore some balance and get off of this endless war, this endless militancy, this endless uh, set of revolutions we've been on for hundreds of years and restore some sanctity and some sacred honor into our relations with other people, with other men and women, such that we can extricate ourselves from this trap, which is going to lead to a nuclear war. And the survivors of that war, if it happens, will be spiritual because they will have lived through the ultimate expression of a world which has no limits and has no spirit or God. And this is something that I would like to see us avoid through consciousness raising, we're in this, this, this 
experiment of consciousness, we have the right to turn back, to rethink, to reframe, to regrow, to reconsider. And to the extent that our political parties squelch that conversation out of fear, out of racism, out of anti-Semitism, out of, out, of, out of an exclusionary impulse for control, to the extent that our voices are not heard, we stay stuck in this same repetitive spot, you know, with this constant violence, this constant poverty, this constant unbalance, this constant unwellness. So we have to open our parties, both of the parties, to new ideas, to growth, to evolution, such that the people can grow through this polarity, this false polarity, which keeps us apart, which makes us hate each other. So I go back to one of the themes that I've been sharing. Truth. Truth, transparency, no hidden agendas, no backstabbing. Truth, the expression of truth, the listening to truth, and nonviolence. Truth and nonviolence. Every American citizen adopting truth and nonviolence, if we do it together in a chorus, we will work through this very quickly and focus on a world of well-being, which will benefit ourselves and our children. So I don't often want to go uh, biblical because it, I don't want to get pigeonholed, uh, although I am a believer and I do read the Bible and I think there's great wisdom there. You know, Matthew 5, this is the polarity that matters. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came on to him. And he, this being Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, listen to these polarities. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, when you're poor, when you don't have material wealth. Your wealth is your connection to the spiritual. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted when you're really mourning, when you're really torn apart inside from loss or from illness or disease. The only comfort can come from the spiritual. No man or woman can comfort the true sufferer only the spiritual can bring comfort to the true, that, that person who really suffers. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, the weak. Why? Because the strong are off on a power trip that's going to have a very unhappy end. We, the meek, can come together as a human chorus. and We can make the strong irrelevant in their devil philosophy, as Bob Marley sang crazy bald heads, we can just move them out. Let them go to their own world. We want, the, we want to turn this world into a paradise, and we are fully capable and have all the spiritual means to do so. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In other words, I struggle to give up my addiction to sin, which is separation from the spiritual. I struggle for righteousness, the righteousness that comes from the spiritual. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
I want to forgive myself and everyone else for the sins that are, are committed because I need that mercy myself. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God like a little child. To be pure in heart. I know my heart is young. That makes me young. That makes me timeless. If people are feeling old, be like a little child. Remember we talked about get on the floor and get up? Do it with your doctor's approval. But when you're like a little child dancing around and you can get on the floor and get up and get on the floor and get up with your doctor's approval, never put your life at risk. Be smart about the exercise that you do. But if you have the time and the will and the strength to practice that, you'll be like a little child. You're going to feel younger. I try to do it every day. It makes me feel good. I'm very stylish about getting up. makes me feel good about myself. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Let us not ask ourselves why people are making peace. Let us not presume to get in their heads and fortune tell their reasons for doing so. Let us just accept their peacemaking, that it should be made whole and made relevant and manifest in our world. Let us get to the point where we have peace and then discuss motives afterwards. Let's stop killing each other first any way we can, by any means necessary. Let's stop killing each other. Then let us take that space to investigate ourselves and each other. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For those of us that are persecuted, and that would be me truly, yours truly, I get persecuted because I'm attempting to be righteous. People don't like that. They think I got some angle on this thing. They call me a self-promoter. You know what? That's just great. Mine is the kingdom of heaven. You can put yourself in my head and try to figure out my motives. But if you come speak to me, I would tell you that everything I'm doing is for God and country and family, and that anything that comes to me as a benefit from what I'm doing, from what I'm doing is a blessing given to me by God. Let me say this again. If you think I'm doing this politically as a promoter for self-benefit, I'm going to tell you I'm doing it because I want to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'm asking you to talk to me so I can explain this and that any benefit that I would get from these activities would be a blessing given to me by God for my self-sacrifice for God, country, and family. Because when they say self-sacrifice, it's not really a sacrifice for me to give up sin and separation. But I've been working on this for a long time, and please be patient with me because God is not through with me yet. I'm not trying to portray myself as a perfect person. In fact, I'm a horrifying sinner. But I understand my sin, and I'm working with my sin, and I'm seeking the kingdom of God. I'm seeking the kingdom of heaven. That is the purpose of why I'm doing this podcast. And there's a technique to this. You know, I think a lot of people that are watching this look at these as words, like it's some kind of esoteric fugazi. It's not. It's a scientific method of the spiritual that is not taught in our schools. Remember, 
We have a non-sectarian education. Of course we've forgotten the spiritual because someone made a decision not to teach it. Of course we've forgotten the spiritual. Someone, that would be us, our elected representatives, like the Johnson Amendment in 1954. Churches, synagogues, and mosques have a 501c3 status. They're tax-exempt. That means they can take money in and not pay taxes. But there's a catch. Everything has a catch. Their allegiance is no longer to God. Their allegiance must be to the United States of America. So if their allegiance is to the material and to the political, how can they accurately teach the spiritual? And the answer is they can't and they don't. Much like our universities, which at one time were dedicated to the spiritual, and now they're on the government payroll. They're a welfare recipient, and we're all paying for it. Is it any surprise that they're generating immense unhealthiness and unwellness because that's how the British business model works? Slavery, drugs, and piracy, and to turn people against one another such that they can never unite to turn this world into the paradise that it could become? We have every spiritual tool to turn this planet into a heaven on earth. But then we wouldn't have a small group that benefits as parasites. These people that are running this, and we'll call them out by name over time, and I know you know who some of them are. They're parasites. They're parasites. They are manipulating and using the people so that they have all the power and control and money. And we are inventory for them, no different than the African slaves. Now we have slavery 2.0. I am not wearing shackles, but I am shackled. I am not in the fields in tatters. However, I am a wage slave. I am not farming sugarcane, but I do live in a society that is permeated by drugs. Nothing has changed. They've just gotten very good at their game. Decolonization ended the old world order. The Atlantic Charter ended the old world order, but they didn't go away. They just recapitulated the new world order with the same business model. And they allowed us to have some freedom for many decades because they had to reorganize. And now we're on the verge of a new technology prison, a digital prison, a health prison, a prison for our mind, a prison for our body, and we're stepping into it voluntarily. You see, now this is very, very anti-God anti-spirit. And I'll share with you why. In that first business model 1.0, the enslavers went out and kidnapped people, killed people. They were actively involved in slavery, in piracy and drugs, such that there was a crime being committed. They were dealing the drugs. Like in China, when the British flooded the country with opium. That's a, it's a drug crime. 
Slavery, obviously, it's a crime. A crime. Piracy, it's a crime. Of one person parasitizing another. But in this 2.0, we do it to ourselves. This is very insidious. Oh, these people are very tricky. They want us to kill ourselves. They want us to kill ourselves. I'm going to run out of time again, but that's great. I just can't get to the punchline, which is American imperialism. I will get there. Trust me, we're going to get there. But, you know, I come in every time with all kinds of different alternatives. And when I talk about killing ourselves, here's an article from this morning's uh, Washington Post. Di diabetes, obesity rising among U.S. young adults. Study finds a generation risks early death, which, of course, people of color likely to be the most affected. Diabetes and obesity. Okay. Now I want you to think about this for a second. Yes, the food is unhealthy. A handful of large companies control the food supply. And when we go to the grocery store, there's aisle after aisle of unhealthy food. I'm cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, sugar, processed foods, processed meats, cookies, cakes, soft drinks, sugar. I mean, it's everywhere. It's crazy. And you know what? What do we do? We walk down the aisles and we buy it, sometimes with government vouchers. And we go home and we eat it. And we watch TV all day, play video games all day. And is it a surprise that after a short number of years, we're grotesquely overweight, which is the predicate for diabetes, which is the predicate for early horrifying death and cardiovascular disease? Oh, my God. Let us blame these food companies. Blame, blame. Oh, there we go. We're on that polarity, social Darwinism, because, you know, they believe if you're stupid enough to eat it, they're smart enough to get paid for feeding it to you. And then we get the food warriors out here. We're going to make soft drinks illegal. But marijuana legal. You know, they got, there's always a fugazi going on over here about what's good for you. See, we're stuck on this. Stuck on this food polarity. Bad food, kill you, but we have a new idea for you. We're going to give you the idea. And you know what? I'm sorry. It's complete BS. We, the people, know what's good for us. We know. We just don't do it. I don't want to blame somebody for the things that I do to myself that are bad because when I do that, I've given up all my power to ever fix it. I know what I do to myself that's not good for me. I know. I claim my own power to improve the quality of my own well-being. First step. I have to do it for myself. I have to learn what's good for me. And you want to know why? Because what's good for me is not good for you. Because guess what? We're human beings. We're infinite in our genetic composition. None of us are the same. We're infinitely diverse. Oh, what does that do to the concept of racism? Because if you're all white, you're all infinitely diverse. So you're getting a little goofy with this racism thing. Everybody's different. And you know, if you push people far enough down the line, they'll parasitize, you know, down to the last person. 
So we got to get off of this polarity. I know I'm getting a little out there now. It happens sometimes when I'm talking. We're all different. So the first key in being well is making it your own, my own personal response. My wellness is my responsibility. It sounds a little bit like individuals, like not a communist thing. It's kind of an individual thing. How can someone else tell me what's good for me? They can't. That's a lie. We live by many lies. Oh, they have a PhD. Great. You did a good job taking tests. You don't know a damn thing about what's good for me, and I reject your comments about it. I want to feel what's good for me by progressively increasing my sensitivity and checking out how I feel when I put things in my test tube. That would be my tube, my elementary channel. If I eat something that's not good for me and I sit and think about it, I don't feel good. It's very simple. There are cultures that we are told are our enemies that are not our enemies. The cultures are not our enemies. The people in the institutions are enemies. Let's talk about Chinese culture. We're not the enemy of the Chinese people and Chinese culture. There are people in the institutions of power there that are the most Darwinist sons of guns on the planet. No religion whatsoever, no spirit whatsoever, materiality to the max. But it wasn't always that way, because remember, I'm always saying one thing turns into its opposite. The Chinese people have a long and storied tradition of spirituality. And when it comes to food, they make us in the West look like pikers. In China, when there's food, there's four dimensions. It has to look good. It has to smell good. It has to taste good. And you have to feel good after you eat it. And if you have those four things all good, it's good. But if one of those dimensions, if it doesn't look good, it's out. If it doesn't smell good, it's out. If it doesn't taste good, it's out. And if you don't feel good afterwards, what's the point? So think about how refined that is compared to, you know, what is the one here? Uh, uh, look out over the... Over the, over, through the gums, over the teeth and through the gums, look out stomach, here it comes. Haven't used that one for a while, but really we're just shoveling, you know, unhealth down our gullets. And then we wonder why we get diabetes. Oh, it must be. And I'm sure, see, you know, the Washington Post is saying people of color are likely to be most affected. Well, why would that be? They were slaves. That is the sine qua non of not being responsible for yourself. Take responsibility for your own well-being. First step, take, it doesn't matter if you're a Native American and the victim of genocide. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish and your forebears were the victim of genocide. It doesn't matter if you're black and you're here because your forebears were slaves. Whoever you are, your well-being is a personal commitment to yourself. I am not going to outsource to some group I want to blame for my unhealthiness, my unhealthiness. I'm going to pull my unhealthiness into my own circle and work on it myself. We all need to start there, and we need to start there today. And there's big picture and small picture. Small picture, what am I going to eat today? What am I going to put in my body? How am I going to breathe? 
How am I going to walk? How am I going to exercise? How am I going to interact with other human beings that I encounter today? But writ large, am I going to support a political process which generates a nuclear war and $32 trillion in debt? Isn't this simple, be you Democrat or Republican? Our leaders are failures. Our leaders have failed us because we've outsourced to them our governance. Pull in your self-governance. Well-being is self-governance. Govern yourself. I govern myself. What I eat, how I breathe, how I walk, how I talk, and who I am going to elect and support to represent me in the halls of government. I want leaders that are only concerned about one thing, the well-being of the people. I want leaders elected. Please join me and help me. Electing leaders who only talk about the well-being of the people. And let us feel inside ourselves if the well-being that they're fencing is well-being or a scam to get us killed. Let us get very serious about this. Let's start today. So again, I didn't get to what I really was going to get to, which is American imperialism, American racism, American Manifest Destiny. We're going to get there. Come back next time to the Professor Penn Podcast. If you like this content, please share it with other people you know so we can get this community to explode. And I want to thank you, and I want to wish you the most well-being day that you can make for yourself. Thank you very much.